This is part two of the ICAEW podcast, More Than a Number, and we're looking at the figure of 9.7 billion. That's the anticipated world population by 2050. How can we feed that vast number of people? I've been joined by Janet Ronganarkin, Vice President for Science and Research at the World Resources Institute, and Carl Atkin, Agri-Business Consultant. Janet had just been talking about the chocolate giant Mars and its investment into cocoa growing. But here she reveals the harsh reality of how much private and public investment is actually needed to feed 9.7 billion by 2050. So the total for all purposes public investment budget in the uh, the food sector is $30 billion dollars. Globally, and about thirty four, billion, and four billion from the private sector. It's just a drop in the ocean of what's needed to deal with this mother of all sustainability challenges. Just picking up on the investment point, I mean, I think Janet raised a really interesting issue there. Where does the investment come from? And and what we've seen in a lot of developed countries is we've seen a gradual rundown of the sort of publicly funded historical research institutes and increasing move to the private sector doing the R&D. So we've said to the big life science companies, you do the breeding, you do the genetic development, and then we'll protect your investment because you can patent your variety or you can patent your, your traits or whatever, and you get a commercial payback. That's fine, of course, as far as it goes. But what my concern with that model, by default, pushes the R&D pipeline towards the kind of commercial near to market things. So the, the really big changes that we might see growing crops that are tolerant to contaminated land, to extreme drought stress. Those are very blue sky things that need public investment. And so how we get the public-private balance, I think, right, is very important. Now, we heard from Mike about, you know, gene editing animals to be resistant to diseases, gene editing animals to not grow horns. But of course, politicians have made laws to stop these things happening. Where are we on sort of genetically modified organisms? Well, genetic modification is a process that can be used to do either good or bad things. So people tend to polarise GM as either being good or bad. GM is just a process. To my mind, there's a sort of broader philosophical point here, which is about the relationship of consumers, politicians, and their trust in science and technology to solve solutions. So, you know, the the, the sort of GM debate, which which started very badly in, in the EU in the, the 1990s, those who are old enough to remember the sort of Frankenstein food headlines on the Daily Mail in the 1990s, I mean, it was, it was a classic case of very bad market judgment by Monsanto at the time as they tried to bring their technology in. But there is a danger that this sort of distrust of science and technology particularly from a sort of relatively affluent, relatively well-fed part of the world, is an issue. And, you know, I draw parallels here with the sort of anti-vax movement as well. You know, we sit in a part of the world where we don't have many diseases and we've eradicated most of them. And we're making decisions not based on science and technology, but based on emotion. Two billion people to be fed or two and a half billion people to be fed in the next 30 years. Do we need GM? We cannot afford to take anything off the table, given the magnitude of the challenge. So yes, it needs to be on there. It does offer a lot of promise. Without that, we're not going to be able to solve some crop and livestock diseases. We're not going to be able to deal with some of these environmental problems, like how do you breed plants that take up nitrogen more efficiently, or cows that burp less, or crops that are more resilient to extreme temperatures or drought. So yes, it needs to be there, but it needs to be regulated carefully with the end user and the public's safety in mind. There is an assumption that GM, people immediately think of sort of high tech. Let's not forget what traditional plant breeding is. Traditional plant breeding is often dousing plants with radiation to force them to mutate. 
and then crossing the plants through traditional techniques that we just talked about earlier, and then hoping that the progeny will have the desired characteristic effect. And this, this is a very slow process that takes 10, 15 years to develop a crop variety. What we're talking about here is simply using technology to precisely isolate the bits we need and, and short-circuiting that from Speed 10, up. 15 years to sort of three years. Yeah. Which is clearly important given we have this challenge in 30 years. Absolutely. You know, breeding is a, a key strategy in raising uh, yield, so we don't require as much land and inputs to feed the planet. Our final case study has the potential to both improve productivity, but also to do less damage to the soil. My name is Ben Scott Robinson, and I am co-founder of The Small Robot Company. And the main aim of our company is to use precision robotics and AI to sustainably increase production of the world's largest crops. As part of this, we're looking to solve the major problem of feeding 2 billion more people by 2050. And our part of that is to create a service that will plant, monitor and care for a crop on a per plant basis. The way we're delivering this is by creating an entirely new model for sustainable farming. So we're using robotics and AI and our farm bots are called Tom, Dick and Harry. And they will seed and feed and weed arable crops autonomously with minimal waste. Because we want to move from caring from the field down to caring to each individual plant. And this allows us to make a farming both more sustainable, but also more profitable. So it's the best of both worlds. So we are focused on creating an end-to-end -end service for arable farming. We will have on the farm a Tom robot that does the monitoring of the crop. It will drive up and down the rows, uh, collecting data on a regular basis, allowing us to understand the health of the crop, to understand where the weeds are, and to understand the health of the soil. We then pass that information through an AI-driven operating system, which then converts all this data into intelligence and instructions for Dick and Harry to be sent out. Dick's job is to kill the weeds, to treat the crops for pesticides and fungicides, and Harry's job is to plant the seeds in the ground individually without the need for ploughing. So... For farmers, they don't need to buy these robots. We're providing this as a service. So farmers pay on a per hectare basis, which means that we look after the robots, we deliver the robots when they're required and necessary, and we take them away afterwards, which takes a huge amount of pain for farmers uh, out of the process of adopting new technology. Our robots are extremely light, so they're somewhere between one and 400 kilos rather than up to 40 tons. This means that they're not compacting the soil and causing damage to the environment that they're trying to grow crops in. It also means they don't have to plough, which is one of the most energy intensive and damaging processes within the crop production process. The robots are very lightweight. They are made of aluminium. They tend to be sort of four-wheel drive and four-wheel steer, so they're very nimble and able to get around. They're probably the size of a standard desk, maybe getting a little bit larger for doing robots, which can spread out to be about three metres wide. But ultimately, their purpose is to be very, very precise, very light on the field, and capable of treating individual plants with a great degree of precision and accuracy. So we have 
started the company off the back of a lot of research with farmers. My business partner, Sam, is an arable farmer, a fourth generation arable farmer. So we have developed this whole service off the back of information that's been provided to us by farmers, which means that it really ticks their boxes. So it takes away a lot of the risk about adopting new technology. It answers a lot of their concerns and allows them to take on board and adopt what we're doing very fast. We have 20 customers who have already paid for our service up front and in advance. And those customers include people like Waitrose and the Leckford Estate and the UK's largest landowner, which is the National Trust. So we have a great deal of buy-in to what we're doing. It also allows us to stage the implementation of our service in a way which farmers want to adopt. So the first thing that we're doing, now that we can map each individual plant in the field, is to go out and kill weeds without using chemicals. So we're using a system that just uses electricity to take out each individual weed plant. That means not only are we reducing the cost, it also means that we can only focus on the weeds that actually cause damage to the crop, which means that a standard field of wheat can be a lot more diverse, can encourage a lot more wildlife in it, and also do things like lock nitrogen back in the soil again, which is being drawn out by the crop plants. And we found that the demand for what we're doing far outstrips what we can supply at the moment, both in the UK and uh, in places like Northern Europe, but also Canada and the US as well. You're listening to More Than a Number, brought to you by ICAEW. Well, we heard from Ben there about the importance of soil. So not needing to plough if you use his robots, heavy machinery, not compacting the soil and using less weed killer, less chemicals because he's electrifying the weeds rather than using chemicals. How important is soil management? And again, how if, if we treat our soil better, how much of an improvement could this be? How, how much of that gap could better soil management uh, fill? So soil health is absolutely critical to our ability to you know be able to produce food on, in a sustainable way. But I actually loved this example. I actually looked at the robots last night. They're, they're a bit like the war of the worlds, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, and I'm, I'm like, I want those robots on my garden to zap my weeds with electricity. So I'm going to get them there on my knees and do it myself. But anyway, I want to say that I love this because it's actually three in one. It is about soil health because of the less compaction. But it's also about using less inputs. You know, he talks about how they're able to be more more focused, to be able to collect information. They can reduce the nitrogen that needs to be added, the water, you know, the chemicals that are required. So there's a big thing on that side. There's about the soil health. They didn't actually mention the issue of carbon storage, which is actually another benefit that I think they could probably start to investigate whether it's viable or not. But if you're not plowing up the soil, you're actually increasing the soil carbon. So that actually has a, a greenhouse gas benefit there. Um, and then the other one is something we've been talking about more broadly on this show, which is the higher yield. What about water management? Because that's something you feel very strongly about, Carl. Why is it so important and, and what could we do? OK, so I think the, the, the first point I'd say is the, the small robot uh, company is a great example of what I call the sort of technological revolution in agriculture. And there are um, other examples as yeah. well. Would you so, give me them? So I think if you look at the 20th century, I always think there's been two big agricultural revolutions. There was a mechanisation revolution in the early 20th century when we basically went from horses to tractors and other implements driven by, by internal combustion engines. And then the second half of the 20th century was the science and technology revolution, which was 
mostly about plant breeding and advances in, in chemistry and, and ke- chemical development, you know, both in the developed world, but also uh, in the developing world, obviously, which the Green Revolution is, is, is the best example. I think the technological in, uh, revolution that we're now seeing challenges a lot of the historical norms about 20th century agriculture. So mechanization was a big driver of scale. Farmers wanted to have bigger and bigger pieces of equipment. Farmers needed more and more land to get economies of scale for tractors, combine harvesters. And as Janet's already mentioned, one of the problems with this is you get bigger and bigger pieces of equipment, they cause more and more soil damage. So we've created a lot of problems with soil management through the kind of machine we use. And the small robot company totally flips that on its head. The second one is water. Agriculture globally is a terrible waster of water. In almost all parts of the world, there is really no true economic agricultural water market. You know, there's a little bit in California and there's a little bit in the Murray-Darling Basin in, in Australia. So water's effectively free. Water's effectively and so, and free. So, and so you can overuse it. So we can overuse it and we waste it and we put it on with very simplistic technology. Basically, we have big pivots or booms or uh, reels in fields that's pumping out water into the air. And in subtropical and tropical environments, huge amounts of that is immediately evaporated and lost and we're not using that water efficiently. So using technology to be able to put water both more directly at the plant, so innovative... The plant that's that's suffering from drought, not the plant that isn't. Absolutely. So, yeah, two two bits. One is using better technology to actually get it closer to the plant, so sort of drip and trickle and and other kind of innovations. But then also using smart technology, so linking this into water probes, which which are already used to be found in conventional irrigation, but tying this up in a closed-loop system so we can be actually allocating water to individual plants or individual crops or, or individual plots in a field, I think would be a revolution in terms of how we use water. The ability of these robots to be identified what is a weed and what is food, because food actually, most food crops grew, you know, evolved from weeds, you know, when to be able to assess whether the conditions are conducive to adding fertilizer or not. All of that is sort of predicated on big data, machine learning and AI. And I, I think in the next sort of decade, we're rapidly going to see this massive shift from farming being done in a data-poor environment to farming being done in a, a data-rich environment. Let me give you one example that's quite profound from the United States. Um, you know, there's a proprietary technology now that I'd like to open up and get my own hands on that allows us to monitor crop yields on a daily basis at the field level as the crops grow using satellites. So the satellite measures a signal from chlorophyll, so it's able to measure photosynthetic activity. So certain companies are actually predicting you know, the yields on a daily basis to an accuracy of about 99% of soya, wheat, maize, and the other ones. Why is that valuable? How can that close the gap, the two billion people to feed gap? Well, I think that there's, Sounds fascinating. There's, there's two things, and I agree. I mean, I think satellite imagery and, you know, particularly for broadacre crops and then drones for higher value crops, because obviously that's more intensive. But, um, you know, the use of uh, information and data in agriculture is, is going to be absolutely critical. I mean, and I, I agree with Janet. I mean, I, I kind of lump tech and data together, but we are in a data revolution for sure, as well as, as we are in, obviously, in, in many parts of society. I think that there's a number of facets to this the targeting of input use. So, we've, something we touched upon already, the fact that using remote sensing, you can spot areas in a field where there might be drought stress, where there might be a nutrient deficiency, where there might be a disease starting to, to break out. So you can target input use more efficiently. The, the second thing, in picking up on Janet's point about machine learning algorithms, is you know we've now got companies developing you know machine learning algorithms, something called pre-symptomatic disease identification. So can we see which crops are going to get disease before it's visible with the naked eye? How so, do you do that? So effectively, the, with very, very high spectral resolution cameras, they, they fly over the crops. With and, a drone? With a drone. And 
because of the, the high resolution of the cameras, they're looking for changes that are going on as a sort of subsurface of the leaf. So before it's visible with the eye, obviously we can see the fungal kind of spores and, and pustules developing in the kind of lower layers. So the idea there is if we can get on and treat those crops earlier, A, we can use less product, and B, we can target the applications just to the areas of the field or to the, the farm or the whatever where the problem is. And that's extraordinary. That's happening now. Yes, it is. But imagine if in Africa, okay, where we've got yields, you know, there's a hundredfold difference between what they could be and what they are today, that we're able to sort of monitor where those areas are, where inputs, how that actually changes yields over time to actually do our interventions work. But also, you know, where should we be going crops in the future? Because not everything's going to grow where it used to grow. So how do we pinpoint what crops can grow where, taking into account climatic conditions, as well as, you know, you know, how to improve the productivity of those desirable crops in those places. So that's a kind of data revolution we need to bring to, to Africa. The other thing I think that this sort of increased automation brings is the opportunity to solve the labour problem in agriculture. Because uh, in many parts of the world, agriculture is, has historically been seen as not a particularly attractive industry in which to recruit highly skilled talent. So, you know, recruiting people at farm operator level, at, at junior and middle management level is often difficult. And it's not just a developed world problem, it's also an emerging market problem. So again, as somebody who's done a lot of work in Russia and Ukraine, I often joke that anybody with any get up and go has got up and gone a long time ago from many of the villages, many hundreds of kilometers from a big town or city where we're farming. And so you are fishing in a very small talent pool. So I think mechanization and increased automization helps solve a labor skills problem and a labor supply problem. It also helps deal with the challenges in developed markets where using immigrant labor is becoming more difficult, both from a policy point of view and from a relative economics point of view. So, you know, people don't want to come and pick fruit. They want to come and work in higher value, you know, service sector jobs. And the third thing is it helps with improving product quality and consistency in very high value crops. So if we can get really, really bespoke picking robots... So, for example, table grapes. Table grapes have to be picked by hand because at the moment grape pickers cause too much grape damage. Now, we can we industrially pick grapes that go into wine. That's fine. But, you know, can we get the technology to come so that we can produce really, really high value crops and get automate the picking of those? That would be very interesting. And we have touched on this in the discussion about producing food more sustainably. Is there anything else that we need to consider globally to achieve that? The three areas that we kind of focused on, one is producing more with less, including land, water, and other inputs, consuming more sustainably, you know, less meat, particularly ruminant meat, beef, um, goat, and lamb. Um, and then the third area we talked about is protecting natural ecosystems. Produce, consume, protect. Those are the three areas I'd say we've discussed. And on the protecting the global ecosystem, so deforestation, ripping up rainforests to produce whatever, um, how can we achieve that globally? Because often it's the countries that are least well off that have a lot of these very important ecosystems. The deforestation frontier isn't necessarily driven by the people in those poor countries. It's driven by the global quest and demand for these commodities. So uh, I don't think all the responsibility goes on them to solve this problem. I think there's a lot that we can do here, but we also need to be you know, tying aid and investment in those countries, both to increasing productivity while protecting their ecosystems. 
One of the big elephants in the room for me is we need all of us, whether we're in the private sector, whether we're in government, whether we are in the supply chain, we all need to work towards, I think, understanding what uh, a single view of what we believe sustainable agriculture and food is. And one of my biggest criticisms with a lot of these analyses of different chains is people cherry pick different bits of data to suit their own point of view. So, you know, carbon footprinting, it all depends where you draw the boundaries around what is included. Some systems that are very good for greenhouse gases are less good for things like water, or they may be less good for things like biodiversity. And there's always a lot of complicated trade-offs between these different things. And I think how we understand and metricate the interaction of these different aspects of sustainability in agriculture is one of the key challenges we've got to crack. Let's go back to the opening question. We've got two, two and a half billion more people to feed in the next three decades. Can we achieve it, Carl? Absolutely. I mean, every modern day Thomas Malthus since the original Malthus has been proved wrong. Higher prices and higher returns in agriculture stimulate more investment. That's clear. So we've seen an upturn in, in agriculture investment in the last 10 years on the back of you know the 2007-8 price spike and then, then a sort of increased commodity prices since then. So we need more private investment and we're getting it. We need more public investment where there's market failure and there's market gaps. And, and, and Janet's absolutely right. In, in many parts of the developing world, the commercial sector is just not going to take that initial leap. And it's going to have to be done through development capital or through um, quasi-public funding. Two, two and a half billion more people, Janet. Can we feed them in three decades' time? Uh, we can. It's not going to be easy. We published the report, Creating a Sustainable Food Future. We identified 22 key things that we needed to do over what we call five courses. So... We've got to reduce growth in demand for food and agricultural products. We've got to increase the food production, and I would say fish production too, in a sustainable way. We've got to thirdly protect and restore natural ecosystems. And lastly, we have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So we've got 22 solutions over those five courses. None on their own are going to do it. It's going to take all of those, and it's going to take an enormous effort, and we better get started. Well, that's it for this podcast. Thank you to Carl Atkin, and thank you to Janet Wonganarkin. More Than a Number is brought to you by the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales. ICAEW promote, develop and support chartered accountants and students around the world who use their expertise to ensure we have a successful and sustainable future. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not check out 1.5 Degrees Centigrade, the hot topic, where I ask, is business ill-prepared for climate change? Be sure to subscribe.